Hi everyone, I'm Jordan and uh, I'm reading the Bible for us today. Our reading comes from 1 Corinthians 3 and you'll find a copy of it in your handout. One Corinthians three, starting in verse one. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be each rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames." Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written... He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Hi, uh, my name's Tim. Uh, if you were hoping that Ben was speaking today, we're all excited that he was going to be the speaker, like I was, I apologise. You've got me and not Ben. <laughs> Let me just turn the lights up a bit. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Tony. Can you see me? Okay, I can see my notes now. <laughs> I think that was my wife who spoke. You'll find an outline um, of the talk uh, beside the Bible passage as it's printed on the handout that you got. 
Well, we live in what I'd call a celebrity world. Actors and entertainers have become celebrities, loved and adored by, by the millions. Katy Perry has 96 million followers on Twitter. I'm not one of them. Justin Bieber has 95. He's catching up fast. Taylor Swift has 99 million followers on Instagram. Sporting grades actually do better. Ronaldo has 120 million followers on Facebook. Others, I don't know how it happens, but others are just famous for being famous, like the Kardashians. And it's not surprising that in the Christian world, there are celebrity pastors. The same culture invades us, and they're on the rise. If Twitter is anything to go by, Joel Osteen and uh, Joyce Meyer and Rick Warren and John Piper are celebrities. Christianity Today, a, a Christian magazine in America, recently wrote a couple of articles on the rise of the celebrity pastors, commenting on just how fashionable it had become. Well, why is it? Why have we got celebrities? Why do we follow them? Well, I guess it's partly that we live in a much more connected world. We're aware of Taylor Swift and everybody else. We hear them, we see them. It's also, I think, in the Christian world anyway, that publishers push particular writers' books. They spend millions promoting them. We hear about the books, we hear about the, the writers, they become celebrities in that, way, in that sort of way. And some of them are doing wonderful things that benefit many people and they're rightly admired. Others are dangerous heretics. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. But the question, I think, is why do people follow them? It's easy to lay the blame at the feet of the, the, the leaders, the celebrities, they're the showmen and the showwomen who love to be loved, who draw on the adulation of the crowds. But it takes two to tango, doesn't it? That is, the followers are part of the dynamic as well. Presumably we follow them because we get something out of it. Now, celebrity pastors is not new to Christianity. It infected the church in Corinth that Paul wrote to in the first century AD. Uh, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll remember back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says in verse 11 that Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, that's Peter, still others, I follow Christ. There are these celebrities that are causing jealousy and factions and division, these personality cults. And people are, are, are clumping in as groupies of different pastors, different leaders. And that's what we pick up again in chapter 3. He's still on that topic. In chapter 3, verse 4, when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, aren't you merely human beings? There's jealousy and quarrelling among them about who's better. And in fact, right to the end of chapter 4, Paul is dealing with this issue. We'll finish with it next week. They're boasting, he says in chapter 3, 21, about human leaders. No, they're boasting about my guy. My guy's better than you. He's wiser than you. He's more powerful than you. He's cooler than, than your guy. More impressive. But notice, Paul doesn't blame the leaders in Corinth. He blames the followers, the congregation members, the church members who've created the celebrity pastors, people like you and me in our churches and, and in our Christian culture, if we're Christians. Now, I just want to backtrack for a little bit, for a couple of minutes, just to pick up the threads of what he said in chapters 1 and 2 on this topic. He says, you guys are impressed by powerful wisdom. That's what you want. You want miracles. You want clever speakers who've got style. And so you're following leaders who deliver. But God's power and wisdom is not in clever leaders. 
God's power and wisdom is in the foolishness of the cross of Christ. That's where you found it. That's the power to save people from hell for eternity. That is the power and the wisdom to transform people <clears throat> from, from hopeless to being like Christ. That's where you find the power and the wisdom. Now, Paul's very aware that, that based, generally speaking, that's not what people want. They want miracles. They want wisdom. That's what impresses them. But despite the fact that's what people want, Paul says you'll only find the power and wisdom of God in the message of the cross. They want show and style, and they dismiss Jesus and his shameful death as weak and foolish. But by the Holy Spirit, some people recognise that in the cross of Christ is power and wisdom. They welcome it. They embrace it. That's the last two chapters. Now chapter three. <clears throat> now Paul knows that the Corinthians have the spirit. He, he saw that happen. He, he knew that they were born again of the spirit of God. But he says, you wouldn't know it by your behaviour. Chapter three, verse one. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly. As if you're not Christians at all. Or maybe just mere infants in Christ, babies. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans, not spiritual people at all? For when one says, I follow Paul, and, and the language, the way he expresses it is, you know, I follow Paul. And if somebody else says, I follow Apollos. It's not actually about Paul and Apollos. It's about me. It's about the status I get because I hang out, I identify myself with one of those cool guys. In fact, the coolest person. That's what they're doing. It's all about your own status. Because if Apollos is really cool, then I'm cool if I'm one of his. A friend of mine, uh, every time one of the big bands used to come through Perth, he would try and get a job as a roadie. You know, the roadies who go and help set up and all that sort of thing. He'd, really, he'd get there as early as possible, try and get a job as a roadie. Because if you got to be a roadie, you got to get one of their T-shirts. You know, one of those black roadie T-shirts that's got the band name and the tour title and everything on it. And he could wear that around for the next six months. And because it was a great band, he, got, he felt like he was special. He was important. Now, he never played a, 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 you know, one note. He just wore the T-shirt. But I belong to you too. That makes me somebody. Well, that's what it was like in Corinth. And Paul wants to knock that on the head. And he keeps doing it in this chapter. Bit of a spoiler alert, though. Of course, he's knocking something on the head. A lot of this is going to be a bit negative. I hope you can cope with that, because we need to hear it occasionally. Come with me. His first question in verse 5 is, well, what after all is Apollos or, uh, or Paul or Piper or Keller or Houston or Ben Ray? <laughs> They're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. See the point? The major player is not some person, some man, some pastor. It's God. Because God makes things grow. He's using a farming or a, a, a gardening metaphor. Now, ag students, sit up, take notice. Any here? One. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I don't know if you've ever tried gardening, but it can be a very frustrating experience because you get all the conditions right. 
You know, you groom the soil, put a little bit of fertiliser in. You put the seed in. You bought it from Bunnings. It must be a good seed. You water it. Maybe even you play music to it to try and get it to grow. But you can't make it grow. That's something else. Somebody, somebody else is doing that. What Paul is saying is, in the metaphor of Christians, God does that. You might put the seed in and it doesn't matter how loud you shout at the seed, grow! It's not going to do it. It won't make any difference whatsoever. No, you just need patience to wait and see whether it grows and a bit of humility to realise that you can't do it. See, why does your friend become a Christian and mine doesn't? We might have both planted and both watered. What makes the difference? Is it because you're a cool person and I'm not? No. It's because God chose to give growth in one situation and not in the other. He gave his spirit to that person. And they were able to see that the message of Christ crucified was the power and wisdom of God. And maybe my friend just didn't see that, couldn't, couldn't understand it, just dismissed it. It's God who makes things grow, which is humbling, isn't it? Because I like to think I'm in control. I like to take credit when it goes well. Why do some churches grow and others don't? Because God grows them. And that's got implications for how we think about church leaders, for the workers. Verse 5, what are they? They're just servants. They're just labourers. I don't know whether you've seen this, but around uni there are people who clean lecture theatres. There are others who do gardening. Some are security guards. You sort of probably might have noticed them, but you probably haven't noticed the cleaners. They're completely invisible. Of course, they're just labourers. They're just workers. They're nobody important. Well, Paul says that's what they are, just labourers. They're just the, the plowers. Now, planting and watering, are, in one sense, they're essential to the growth. You can't have growth without it, but they're not the determining factor. God is. They're just the ploughboy, the water boy. Some were converted through Paul, some through Apollos, but he says that's just how the Lord assigned it. Now, if Paul had 25 converts and Apollos had one, that was just the Lord's choice. They can't take any credit for it. We usually have, I think, too high a view of our leaders and pastors. If there's growth, we think it's because of them. If there's failure, we blame them. We're too much like the corporate world. That's what the corporate world does, doesn't it? If a company's not doing so well, you appoint, you sack the CEO and you bring in a new CEO. And you give them two or three years, and if they can't turn the company around, what do you do? You sack them. Try someone else. Our sporting teams do exactly the same thing, don't they? That's why there's this merry-go-round of, of coaches and managers every year. If it's not doing so well at the moment, just kick them out. And if they succeed, what do we do? Well, we reward them. Dollars and dollars and more dollars, millions of dollars. As if somehow they've made all the difference. It's a very mechanistic view of the world, isn't it? The right person with the right methods, it will succeed. The wrong person without the right methods, it won't succeed. It's just mechanical. But the spiritual world is not like that. God decides. God works as he chooses. He gives growth where he wants to and doesn't where he doesn't want to. It's outside our direct control. And Paul must have known that. Because the Corinthians themselves are the object lesson. See, they had Paul for 18 months. It's another five years or so now. They should have, all things being equal, they should have blossomed and grown as Christians, shouldn't they? But they're still babies. They're still in nappies. Is Paul to blame for that? I don't think so. 
God didn't give growth. They should have known, even from their own experience. And in verses 21 to 23, Paul applies this to the Corinthian situation. So then he says, verse 21, No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future. All are yours and you're you're Christ and Christ is God's. No more boasting about human leaders. I belong to Paul. And you say, no, I belong to Apollos. He's better. Now, God may have used one person in a very special way in your life. But it's God who's used them. And so he turns their whole thinking on its head in verse 21. You don't belong to them. I belong to Paul. No, they belong to you. They're given to you by God. You don't have to choose between them. God's given all of them to you. It's not as if you've got to just take one and leave the rest to go. It's not that you should be playing one off against the other. God gave them all to you. Imagine your mum gives you a box of chocolates. And you open the lid and you see the, the mint cream. And you see the strawberry cream, and you see the orange liqueur, and you see the almond, and you see the, 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 the white chocolate, and you see the dark chocolate. Now, what's your mum going to say if you say, if you look at the box and say, oh, this is so hard, you, this is excruciating, I, I don't know which one to choose, I, I, I'm sure the middle bit, what will your mum say? She'll say, they're all yours, just eat all of them. <laughs> well, that's what Paul say. they're all yours. How stupid to think, I can only narrow myself to one of these people and benefit from them. God's given all of them to you as a gift to grow you and help you. It's stupid to think, I I won't listen to someone unless I really click with them, unless I like their style, and and ignore everybody else just to stick with the one I like. It's crazy to think, you know, I'll only go to church if my favourite preacher is preaching, and if they're not, I, I won't go. It's dumb. It's missing out on God's generous gifts to you. And remember, you belong to Jesus, not to them. They're just servants. Now, notice, if you're listening carefully, you'll see that plagiarism is a Christian virtue. I'll let you think about that. But in the middle of the chapter, there's another warning. Uh, It's a warning about dodgy builders. Because not all planting and not all watering is good. Or he changes the metaphor from a garden to a building, from a, 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 an ag student to an architecture student. Any ag- architecture students here? Any, any pseudo-architects? Engineers, you build stuff. Yeah, some of you. Okay. Well, this will be more down your line. Because he, he thinks of what God is doing as building a building. Not a literal building, because it's people. And it's not just any building. He says in verse 16, it's the very temple of God because he indwells it by his spirit. Pick it up in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, Paul, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, as a wise architect. And someone else is building on it, but each one should uh, build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says that he came and laid a foundation in Corinth. He planted the equivalent to that. And the foundation always lays out the shape of a building and gives it all its strength. And that's what he's done for the church in Corinth. He's laid out its shape. He's given it the foundation it needs to be strong. 
What is that foundation? Well, he says it's Jesus Christ. Or in the words of chapter 2, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's his foundation, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what he says in verse 11 is there's no other foundation. It's not that somebody else can come along and they can build God's church on a different foundation. If you build on a different foundation, it's not God's church. God only has his church built on this foundation, Jesus Christ. And so you can make a mistake at that point. You can try and build on another foundation. Sort of like, you know, here's the foundation for the building, but I come along with my bricks and mortar and I start to build it on the grass and sand over there. Like, that's pretty dumb, isn't it? That's what he imagines you might do. And he says, you just can't do it. It won't be God's church if you do that. One of the implications of that, I think, is that if you belong to a church that's not built on Jesus, it's not God's church. It might be nice, it might be pretty, it might be the one you've grown up in, but you can't really be part of it because you won't be built onto Jesus and all your building efforts will prove useless. And this Christ crucified is the clear and visible foundation. I don't mean 100 years ago when they laid the foundation stone for the building, but today. Then you need to stop and consider. But there's a second aspect, and that's about the building. That is, if you've got the foundation right, you could still build with shoddy workmanship on the right foundation. And that's what he talks about in verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation, Jesus using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay and straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, that's the day of Jesus, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss. But yet they'll be saved, even though there's one escaping through the flames. So even if you build on the right foundation... Your workmanship could be really good or it could be really shoddy. Poor quality materials, badly built, and then it'll be no good. Now, I don't know whether this is an urban myth, but I remember hearing a story once about a building developer who was building a block of a um, a group of townhouses um, and he engaged a builder to build them all. But unbeknown to him, the builder was a shoddy builder, Um, but very showy. And so the builder built all this group of townhouses and on the outside it looked really nice but he'd taken every shortcut he could. You know, every beam in the roof was less than specifications. A good storm and it's going to just crash. The mortar that was used in the bricks only had about half the amount of of, uh, cement it should have had. uh, It was going to just wash out in a few years' time. All the fittings looked nice and swanky but actually were just plastic. With a, uh, with a gloss over it. Anyway, the builder thought it was pretty good, actually, but he got into a bit of financial trouble uh, trying to sell the units, and in order to pay off his debt to the builder, he gave him one of his own buildings. It came back to roost. Well, that's the sort of thing that Paul's talking about here. You can build all for show, but if it's dodgy, if there's no real substance to it, in the end, it'll be exposed for what it is. If it's just style with no substance, if it's just show with no reality, that will become clear. Now, friends, can I say, I think we need to hear this because Australians, we're into style, aren't we? 
in a big way. In all sorts of ways. We love our celebrities, but we're more interested in their clothes than their convictions. Guys, we're attracted to women's bodies more than the sort of person they are. In politics, we love the one-liners. We don't care much about policy. And and we like people, not because of their character, but just because they seem cool. And the same thing when it comes to churches and Christian things. We're much more attuned to the sort of music than what's being sung. We're much more attuned to whether people are cool than whether they're godly, whether it's a popular place than a faithful place. But Paul says mere style will be shown for what it really is. Because on that day, it'll be like a fire goes through. And if it's it's just built with straw and hay and stubble, you know what happens when the fire goes through? It just all goes up in flames. Yaluk got burnt to the ground and and, uh, the the vision on, on TV was all you saw of these houses were some chimneys sticking up. That was the only thing that survived because everything else was was wood and straw and stuff like that that's flammable. Well, how we build can be just like that. It can look terrific, can look really impressive, but if it's just straw, that day will show it for what it is. And so he says, take care how you build, back in verse 10. Each one should build with care. So it assumes we're all builders. That's obvious for people who are Christian leaders, but he's actually assuming that all of us, if we're Christians, part of God's people, we are builders. We're contributing to the building or not of the people of God. And he says, build carefully. Make sure you build with quality materials and quality work that will last on the day of Jesus. Now, if you're thoughtful about what Paul's saying, it immediately raises what seems like an unresolvable dilemma. Because what's he saying? He's saying today, build with care. How will you know whether you built with care? Well, you won't know till the last day. That will reveal it. And you shrug your shoulders and say, well, what am I supposed to do then? If I won't know till then, is it just sort of guess? Have a go, see what happens, but I really don't know. Am I left in that sort of situation of an unresolvable sort of dilemma? Well, not really. I'll come back to that in a second. But one of the implications is things can appear terrific. Huge numbers, positive vibe, a really trendy place to be. And there could be real substance or there could could just be all show, all straw. It falls in a heap as soon as the charismatic leader leaves. Or, more pertinently, it'll be burnt up on the day of Jesus. And you won't know till that day, just from outward appearances. And that means... You can't assess things simply by whether it works or not. You see that? You see something that looks, looks fabulous. Don't go by appearances. Because the works we're talking about here is something much deeper than outward appearances. It's about changed hearts. And changed hearts are very hard to measure, aren't they? How do you know whether somebody's just coming along with the crowd, being swayed by the opinion of the peer group, or whether they really are growing in faith in Jesus Christ? not easy to tell and this is, there's this wild card called God who works as he decides so what are we to do I take it that the way Paul talks what we're not to do is focus on results leave that to God don't do things on the basis of results just to get results don't give people what they want because that'll keep more people coming you'll build badly that way and you empty the cross of Christ of its power. 
No, don't focus on results. Focus on building rightly. Focus on your efforts and what you do. Trusting God's message of Christ crucified to be God's power and God's wisdom. Trusting God to work through that to bring eternal results. See, I don't have to wait to the end to know what sort of ministry is quality ministry. I already know. Quality building is the persistent, loving sharing of the message of Christ crucified. That's what it is. That's what he's encouraging us to do, to build carefully. But we can do something much worse than build shonkily. In verses 16 and 17, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. That is, you could demolish God's building. And the Corinthians are in danger of doing that with their rivalry, their divisiveness. They're they're splitting the church, God's own temple. They're ripping it down. See, if you build Shonkali, you're still saved in verse 14. But if you destroyed God's temple, it's so precious to God. Christ died for it. He's given his spirit to dwell within it. God will destroy you. I hope you take a bit of a gulp at that point. That's sobering, isn't it? Because I can do it so easily. Churches are being split all the time. Don't destroy God's temple. Let's pull this together. I don't know about you. But I long to see churches growing. I want to see CU grow and be effective under God. I want to see lots of people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus and Christians thriving in their faith and hope and love and joy, growing towards maturity. And I presume if you're a Christian, you want that too, don't you? You don't want to see churches withering away, becoming stagnant. You want to see them and you want to be part of churches that are thriving. Well, how does it happen? Why do some churches grow and others not? I remember a friend of mine was appointed as the youth worker of of one of the churches in Perth. And as soon as he was appointed, the first thing he did was he, he toured Perth, visiting every youth group that was booming. You can see the reason for that, can't you? I want to go and visit all the ones that are booming because that'll help me work out the keys to making a booming youth ministry. But it leaves out some things. It especially leaves out God's part. Because God's part is crucial. He gives the growth. He causes the growth. We can't do it. Even getting the right leaders and the right program can't guarantee it. And that's got some huge implications. Firstly, it means that rivalry and jealousy between personalities, between churches, between followers of of personalities are just ruled out, aren't they? Paul and Apollos are on the same team. Can't you see And so we'll rejoice in any growth and thank God for it, whether it's in my patch or some other patch. Secondly, it means there's no key, no secret, no method that guarantees growth. For those keen to see growth like I am, that's a bit hard to swallow. But God is God and I'm not and neither are you. One of the implications of that is if we want to see things grow, we need to pray. Because it's in God's hands. Committed to God, ask him to work. It also means that perceived growth or lack of growth is no clear indication of whether we're doing things right. Don't be fooled by either. 
there's a sort of knee-jerk reaction. If things are working, we must be doing the right thing. If things aren't working, we must be doing the wrong thing. Now, that's too superficial. That's human wisdom. And it leads to that constant changing, like corporations do, searching for the right person, the right key. I'm not advocating an obstinate head in the sand either. You know, I'm not saying, you know, if no one comes to your youth group, still just run the program. No, ask some questions. Secondly, our part. Our part is to be builders if we're Christians. Do you notice the enormous privilege of this? Do you realise that in God's kindness, you get to do things that will last for eternity? You might build 20 bridges across the Swan River. You might set up corporations that sell computers to every person on the planet. That won't last for eternity. But a conversation you have with a friend and what God does through it might last for eternity. Do you get that? There's something really worth doing today, next year, with your life. But be careful, he says, how you build. The only foundation to build on is Jesus. The only material to build with that will leave a lasting impression is Christ crucified. So can I ask you, what are you building? If you're a Christian, are you building froth and bubble? Are you building what I call fairy floss? You know what fairy floss is? It looks like it, it, it's substantial. Now, it's quite big, but it's all just sugar and empty space. And you finish it and it hasn't nourished you at all. You still just feel hungry. And a lot of Christian ministry, whether it's youth groups or, or small groups or churches, or sometimes it's just fairy floss. It's very sweet. It's lots of fun. I'm not against fun. Please don't misunderstand me. But if, all, if that's all it is, it won't produce anything on the last day. It'll all be burned up. It'll all be shown for what it really is. Just fairy floss. What are you building in your conversations with your friends? What are you building in the small group that you're part of? What are you building when you go along to youth group if you're involved in youth ministry? And I hope lots of you are. Are you building something that will last forever? Because that's what God gives us the privilege of doing. Now, we've got a few minutes left. Do you want to ask any questions or make any comments? I'm surprised. Ben. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you. So Ben's asked, what does it mean to build on the right foundation but build shoddily? I think it's probably a situation, uh, certainly the situation in Corinth seems to be this, where the foundation is laid. People have come to faith in Jesus, but those who are trying to uh, grow them in faith have lost the centrality and the importance of Jesus and him crucified, and they're trying to use all sorts of other things which are more impressive... Uh, which appeal to people's felt needs more, but aren't pointing people to Jesus and trust in him. They wouldn't deny Jesus, certainly not doing that. They're just sort of ignoring it and, and thinking it doesn't really cut the mustard. It won't really help people very much. It's not very exciting. It won't generate the hype. I, 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 I'll, I'll give things that do generate the hype. I think that's the, that's the sort of thing he's talking about. What they actually talked about... I think in Paul's mind it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it was anything other than Jesus. Um, 
was what they were talking about. Henry? Yeah, um, on the part of like, you need to build well, but like, you only get to know at the end. Um, so you said you were getting back to that. Yeah, so uh, thanks. So Henry's question is, I promised I'd get back to this dilemma of, uh, you've got to build carefully, but you won't know whether you built carefully till the last day, so what do you do? Um, what I hope I said, but didn't say clearly enough, is that what you can do, and what he means by building carefully, is having confidence that the message of Christ crucified will build something of substance. That's what we know is true. No guarantee that it will build everything I wanted to build, but that's the only thing that will build anything of substance. Tony. Um, How do we see the inside of a person or maybe a group? Thanks, Tony. How do we see the inside? Um, I think the the answer is we often don't. I mean, I don't know how you look at the person next to you. You think they may be a good friend. How do I know what's really going on in their hearts? We often don't, do we? We're not quite sure whether, as I mentioned before, they're just going for the ride with the crowd or whether, at heart, they trust Jesus. They love him. They're living for him. Now, there are lots of outward indications that that might be true for many people. I'm saying we don't know anything. We, and and I, a lot of you I, I know, and I, I'm convinced that, that that's true. It's real. Partly because I see you doing it when it's not the flow, when everything's against you, and yet you still stick with Jesus. I think that's when you often know. But within the, the, the bubble of Christian fellowship and see you, you often can't know. It's difficult. And the reality is, it is really hard to know somebody else's heart. We're good at deceiving ourselves and even better at deceiving other people, aren't we? Um, I'm saying you can't know yourself, but I'm saying there's a propensity to deceive. And we need to be aware of that uh, in ourselves and in others. Does that help, Tony? Okay. I think we'll finish there. I'll hand back to Tessa. Um, Happy to stick around and keep chatting about some of these issues.